And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, February 2nd, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, some new recommendations for securing artificial intelligence. Plus, uh-oh, finances at these HUD programs are like a house of cards. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Veterans Affairs Department hired record numbers of people last year. Now it's looking to manage its largest ever health care workforce. VA officials are focused on getting more out of the workforce they've got, not keep growing it. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has more. And just give us some of the numbers, Jory. How much hiring did VHA actually do in 2023? VHA really crushed some of its hiring goals. And to give you a look at this by the numbers, they made 61,000 total hires in FY 2023. And they now have a 400,000 employee workforce. This is the largest workforce size that it's ever had in its history. So therefore, they are flatlining the hiring this year, or what's the plan for 2024, presuming they have the people they need now? Not necessarily flatlining. They're being much more strategic with where they are hiring, things that they always seem to have an acute need for, mental health hiring, uh, hiring in some of its more rural facilities. But this does have an impact overall on its hiring picture across the board here, because not just the volume of people that it now has on board. Uh, It's also seen a pretty decent reduction in turnover. They saw a 20% decrease in turnover between 2022 and 2023. So they're bringing more people on board and the people who are already there, they're not leaving. That's made some some careful decision-making at VA. And what we heard directly from VA Secretary Dennis McDonough is that they have to be a little more careful and a little more judicious of where they are hiring. And as it pertains to VHA, he says that they may need to do some managing of their total headcount through attrition. As it relates to VHA, there may be times when we determine that there are personnel that we don't need going forward. And as we come out of our best hiring year in three decades, we're now focused on execution. And and if there's specific places we need to hire, we'll do that. But reading between the lines, if he says managing through attrition, sounds like they have too many. Maybe they overhired. Well, that seems to be part of the concern here. And this was something that reporters asked him in various ways during this recent press conference we had with him. And this is something that we've heard some social media chatter about from people who are looking to get jobs at the VHA, that they've been waiting a long time. They've gotten tentative job offers, but they haven't gotten final job offers. And they're kind of left wondering what this means for them. So therefore, they have people waiting to hear about jobs. But knowing that there is attrition going on, perhaps people there are saying, what's next for me? Sounds like inside and outside, there's some questions now that these bodies are in place. Yeah, we don't have a full picture quite yet of what this will mean for them. But we did hear from VA Press Secretary Terrence Hayes on this, and he says that the central VA office is working with those local VA leaders across 
the uh, the country because they are the ones in charge of doing all of this hiring at the local level. He says that those local leaders are empowered to make those hiring decisions at the, the VA medical facility level. And Hayes said that if the VA for some reason no longer needs to fill a position at a particular location, that those prospective job applicants, they may be given a job offer at a different VA facility that may have an availability for them to take that job. Well, of course, if you're applying in Portland, Oregon, and the job available is in Nashville or something or vice versa, that could be a logistics problem to actually getting that person on because presumably clinicians can't work remotely, at least not fully. In some cases, yes, but in most cases, the answer is no. But I think the expectation here, and again, we're getting updates by the day here from the VA, but what it currently looks like is that hopefully that alternative job offer would be uh, within commuting distance for those. You don't want a cardiologist, you know, thousand miles away. And you said mental health is one area where they still have maybe a shortfall. Where are they hiring at this point? On the Health care side of things, mental health care is always a going concern for them. They always need to bring more people in, and they are always looking to fill their ranks there. But if you zoom out a little bit more broadly, the Veterans Benefits Administration continues to hire in that they're trying to get their 32,000 employee workforce up to nearly 36,000 employees this year. Here's McDonough saying more on what that would look like. We're going to continue to hire on the VBA side to meet the demands of this historic level of claims filed. But on VHA, it will be more targeted hiring. So beyond what McDonough just said there, uh, VBA needs to make these hires to keep breaking new records for the total number of benefits claims uh, it processes every year. And that number just keeps going higher and higher. And the ability for VBA to process claims is going up every year. One eye-catching statistic here is McDonough says that recently VBA processed more than 10,000 claims each day for a week. And to give you some perspective here, it's remarkable if VA can process 9,000 claims in a day. So the fact that they did well above that consistently for a week is something that is unprecedented for them. Right. And in hiring for VBA, Veterans Benefits Administration, that's a whole different cat than you need for health administration health care providers, as we said, mental health or some other clinical type of health practice. But in claims, that is benefits, benefits administration, then you need people that can adjudicate cases, understand what people need, what the rules are, who's eligible, that kind of thing. Totally different type of hire. Right. It's an entirely different skill set. All right. What else do we need to know? It sounds like workforce is very much on McDonough's mind these days. Yeah, well, there's a lot going on there, and there's more beyond that. So uh, one other thing that we're keeping an eye on here is that the uh, the VA has concluded its final report on some allegations of sexual harassment within its Office of Resolution Management, Diversity, and Inclusion. This is the case where the House VA committee recently filed a subpoena demanding more documents and insight into that internal investigation. Uh, This is the kind of thing that is always upsetting to hear. But of course, given this office, this is where VA's harassment prevention program is contained. So the idea is that there is allegations of sexual harassment in a section of the department that would otherwise handle these cases. And so VA completed its final report at the end of January, and we're still waiting to hear back from the House VA committee on its overall takeaways from that report and 
steps going forward. McDonough says, again, that the department has zero tolerance for sexual harassment and sexual abuse. The relationship we have with veterans and the relationship we have with our colleagues is one built on trust. And we want to earn that trust. Well, the report is in the House members' hands now on what happened in that office. We've checked in with them and we haven't heard a definitive word back yet. But uh, what we heard from the VA side is that they have, in fact, sent that report over to the committee. So if there's zero tolerance, that means they're going to fire a bunch of people if, in fact, the allegations are true. Well, what we know at this point is that some of the uh, individuals who were accused of these actions, that they uh, have since left the VA. So uh, it remains to be seen what additionally the VA can do. McDonough did say that uh, their new head of HR, they've ordered a stand down across all the different agency component heads to review their sexual harassment and sexual abuse policies, uh, make sure that they're up to snuff and having a department-wide stand-down where they are reminding these people what their leadership responsibilities are when they hear about these allegations and that they nip it in the bud. I guess if you have an organization with 350, 360, maybe it's up to 375,000 employees, you're going to get some bad apples here and there. Uh, I guess maybe their big concern is that this is not something systemic, something that is tolerated by others that witness it, but in fact it's isolated to individuals that they can get rid of the minute they hear about it. Yeah, I think that's pretty much the VA's concerns here and the committee's concerns here. What we did here is just that in some cases, you know, people in leadership positions potentially didn't do enough once this was brought to their attention. And so hence the VA stand down reminding all of its leaders that if they do see something, they should say something to their higher ups. All right. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, uh-oh, finances at these HUD programs are like a house of cards. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Financial accounting is so iffy at two housing and urban development programs, the inspector general issued an alert. HUD can't figure out improper payments in these programs, hasn't been able to for years, and won't be able to for years more. For details, we turn to Deputy IG Stephen Begg. Mr. Begg, good to have you back. Thanks for having me on the show again, Tom. Pleasure to be back. So what did you find in which programs that caused you to issue a management alert? That's more than just issuing an IG report or audit. That's right. The management alert is essentially a short report that our inspector general uses to raise issues of significant deficiencies or risks immediately to HUD secretary or deputy secretary. And the issue raised here is simply that HUD needs to do more to protect taxpayer funds from being misspent in its two largest programs. The two programs at issue are rental assistance programs, and the law that's out there requires federal agencies, as you know, Tom, to examine their programs that are susceptible to making improper payments and then take action to mitigate that risk so that taxpayer funds aren't misspent. Uh, Those improper payments can come in the form of over or underpayments, payments made to the wrong people or businesses, duplicate payments, and in the worst cases, payments made in fraud schemes that go people who don't deserve them. Now, these are rental assistance program, and what was the other one? It's two rental assistance programs. So these are the largest programs that HUD uses to assist millions of households across the country in making their monthly rent payments. They come in two variations. One, where HUD works with housing authorities or contractors to provide households with vouchers where they have the option to work with any landlord of their choosing in finding housing. 
and the other where HUD works directly with landlords to provide assistance to entire buildings or projects. So these are payments both to individuals in some cases or to the housing operators or the landlords in other cases? The payments end up going through participants, so housing authorities and contractors directly to the landlords, which is part of the challenge in making sure that they're proper. There are many different stages of them. And so tracking the payments and verifying that they're accurate down to the ground level is really the challenge. Right. These are not quite like programs, say, at Labor Department, where the funds go in bulk, so to speak, to the states, and then the states administer the programs. These are between HUD and local housing authorities and landlords? Yeah, so there are multiple tiers. Payments are made from HUD to housing authorities or to contract administrators, and then those entities would then make payments down to landlords. So testing the accuracy and appropriateness of those payments at both levels has been the challenge for HUD for many years. Yeah, to trace the money from the Treasury down to who owns the house, I guess, can be pretty complicated. Give us the extent of what you found in terms of dollars and possible improper payments. Sure. So in terms of size, in 2016, the funds that went through these two payments totaled more than $30 billion. In 2023, that amount has grown to more than $45 billion. And you know, our office and the Government Accountability Office have been identifying these programs as susceptible to improper payments for many years. Back in 2000, the number of estimated improper payments in the programs uh, by HUD's account was $3.2 billion. GAO labeled the program as high risk in 2001 in light of finding that there were significant opportunities for HUD to reduce overpayments in the program. And then in 2016, the last time HUD was able to estimate how many improper payments happened in these programs. They estimated that $1.7 billion potentially been misspent or was unable to be verified. We've been stressing for several years in our annual report on HUD's top management challenges that it really needs to address improper payments in these two huge rental assistance programs, which account for roughly two-thirds of all expenditures across HUD. We're speaking with Stephen Begg. He is Deputy Inspector General at Housing and Urban Development. And your report said that they have not, as you just described, haven't been able to really know their improper payment levels, which is a way of not really being able to account for the program at all in some sense since 2016, but that they don't feel that they could do so until 2027. What is that mechanism? That is in large part the reason that our office issued this management alert. You know, we, we complete an annual audit of HUD's compliance with the law that requires them to test and estimate improper payments in their programs. And this year, we learned that for the first time that HUD was not believing they would complete those testing exercises until 2027. We did not feel that we should wait to alert HUD leadership of that risk until our annual report came out. And so in our management alert, we identify two areas where we believe HUD leadership needs to intervene. And the first is a lack of planning and coordination across HUD program offices. There are multiple offices that have equities here. There are different programs that administer the two rental assistance programs we talked about, but HUD's finance offices and its IT offices also have a role to play in collecting the information that's necessary for HUD to test and then estimate the potential improper payments in the programs, which is really just the first step in this process, because once you estimate what program risks you have for improper payments, then HUD's required to develop action plans to mitigate and address those. So here, without being able to complete the exercise of gathering the information and testing it, HUD can't then take action to address it. 
Right. So in some sense, they have to get a lot of information, a lot of data from all of the tiers along the line there, somehow correlate that, if that's even possible. And then HUD's responsibility, ultimately, though, to know whether the payments were all proper. So there's sort of a combination of trust and data and verifying here. It sounds like, frankly, a hairball from the from HUD standpoint to get on top of this. Because there are multiple program offices involved, you know, we felt like it was appropriate to raise it to HUD leadership to intervene, to bring them together. But in addition to the moving parts, the reason we feel like HUD has been unable to complete that first step in estimating is due in large part because their approach is flawed. They haven't developed a sound methodology for collecting all of that information at the various tiers that you mentioned in a way that they can complete the testing under the timelines required by the law. Right. Could it be, too, that the process that they have developed over the decades of rendering housing assistance might be so convoluted that nobody could (laughs) trace the money and that they should maybe rethink the whole program from the ground up in terms of where the money goes when it leaves HUD or, you know, leaves the Treasury? You know, our position has been that HUD has the ability to act in a way across its offices to gather and estimate how the programs can be better protected so that the rental assistance funding that comes from taxpayers can be maximized to support the Americans that need it. Our alert raises that recommendation to the HUD's deputy secretary to bring the offices together to really reset what the plan is for getting to that point. But you do feel it's possible to get a handle on the system as it's designed now if they put the effort toward it? We do. Absolutely. And what kind of reaction did you get from HUD leadership when you issued this alert? The deputy secretary's response agreed with our recommendation, which we were pleased with, and agreed with the need that a a detailed plan is necessary to expedite this exercise. The response indicated that the deputy secretary will provide that plan within 30 days, and she's working across HUD's program office leadership to get the job done. We are encouraged by that, and we look forward to working with HUD and supporting that effort. Right. So, in other words, this program did get off the high-risk list somewhere along the line, so we know it's possible. It did. Our concern, though, is that for the past seven years, and if by HUD's estimation, three more, so potentially 10 years, there will be a gap in overseeing it in terms of improper payments and then taking actions to mitigate them. So in our estimation, there's, there's a pretty big gap in what we know about the potential for uh, high risk. Yeah. And what happened in 17, 18, 19, we probably will never know. That's right. That's right. Steve Begg is Deputy Inspector General at Housing and Urban Development. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand and rent free. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how the Education Department earned an A grade on its Fatara scorecard. But first, some new recommendations for securing artificial intelligence. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. By all accounts, artificial intelligence is changing how organizations must approach cybersecurity. Not everyone is certain how, though. Well, now a really big working group assembled by the Aspen Institute has come up with specific recommendations on dealing with AI in the cybersecurity context. Here with the highlights, the Institute's Senior Director for Cybersecurity Programs, Jeff Green. Mr. Green, good to have you with us. Great to be here. 
And we should note you have pretty considerable federal experience in the government working on cybersecurity issues, so you know whereof you speak. But my first question is, and I've heard it a thousand times, AI is really affecting cyber. But exactly how is it affecting cyber? I take that question maybe in a couple of different parts. First, what's happening today and, and what can happen in the future? Our paper tried to look a bit into the future. But today and in the past, artificial intelligence or machine learning, as we used to talk about it, there's a bit of an overlap there. It's helping out in a lot of ways. It's making it easier for humans to spend their time focusing on the most important alerts and allowing them to put to the side some of the things that maybe they don't need to spend as much time. The machine learning and AI tools can correlate incidents, see through big volumes of data that a human would never be able to do. It can connect up a particular incident to another incident, again, that would appear unconnected through whether it's an IP address or other indicators of compromise. It can detect unusual behaviors, basically try to solve some of the human capital issues that we've had in cybersecurity. So that's been going on for quite a while. The ability to detect what we call living off the land type of attacks, where you're not talking about a specific piece of malware that you can detect going forward. That was really what we wanted to get into. There's a lot of speculation. If I could tell you exactly how it would change cybersecurity, I'd probably be trying to get some seed funding. But the group we got together really tried to think about how we thought it could work and what additional tech capabilities it would add. One of the big ones you hear a lot about is writing better code, trying to get vulnerabilities out from the front end with governments talked about this secure by design, making that a reality, helping with your policies and planning, thinking about, you know, you have four vulnerabilities that are all listed as crucial. Which one should you put your resources to patching first? You can have an intelligent assistant help you figure out things like that. A whole range of things that hopefully we'll see coming online in, in the next few years. And this paper, what we were trying to do here, and how did you go about it? It sounds like you had really a large mob of people that know something about cyber coming to impinge on this. What we wanted to do was focus on the end users of these AI tools as opposed to the developers to try to tell organizations, government or otherwise, that are deploying tools today, here are some things that you should think about as you're using them. And we had a conversation, our cyber group meets over the summer, very open-ended about what will, your last question, what will AI do for cyber? And it was somewhat hard to get to concrete recommendations and thoughts because it was such an amorphous future. So what we did was we took our group, which ended up being about 40 people, split them in two and said, half of you write what you think is a feasible future when cybersecurity is really helped by these AI tools. And the other half write a bad future where AI is really enabling the attackers. And then we took those two futures, got in the room, both physically and virtually and said, okay, We want to go towards the good and away from the bad. What are things that we both should do and should not do to help steer us in that direction? So that was our thinking to try to put some bounds around what we're doing. We stopped short of the Skynet future. We said there's no sentient computer out there, but realistic what we think is going to be coming online. Yeah, in fact, the reality of most algorithms is that they get dumber over time because of the bad data they get fed. Us humans make them dumber over time is, is one Maybe pejorative way to put it. All right. Yeah, so these two scenarios then are what people felt were realistically going to happen. And in fact, they both will happen, right? Because AI will enable the cyber defenders as much as it enables the attackers. Yep. I mean, I think what you're likely to see in the future is something that will land, I've described it as adjacent to the middle of what we describe. 
the middle because, as you said, it's going to help everyone, but adjacent to it because I'm sure we got some things wrong and didn't see other things. So hopefully it'll be somewhere close to it. And one of our distinguished members, Herb Lynn, wrote some additional thoughts in the paper where he said, you know, good and bad is in the eye of the beholder. For the United States, it's good that we have a cyber command that's able to see into our adversaries' activities. And for the United States, it's bad if North Korea's defenses become better. So there is very much a contextual element to this as well. And I encourage folks to take a look at what Herb wrote, because I think it added some great thoughts. All right. We're speaking with Jeff Green. He's Senior Director for Cybersecurity Programs at the Aspen Institute and former Director of the Cybersecurity Center of Excellence at NIST. And you have some recommendations on what people should do in the way they handle AI. Just give us the highlights. For me, one of the biggest, don't forget everything you already know about cybersecurity. This is new. There are new elements of it, but we have this tendency to find something new and try to say, oh, let's think about it differently. All the basics of cybersecurity hygiene, of cybersecurity practices still remain. Don't forget them as you go. But with regard to these new tools as they're coming online, we really encourage organizations to proactively manage just how much agency they're giving over to an AI tool. Underlying this is that it is, in fact, okay to hand off decisions, but you want to make a conscious choice as to when you're doing that. And we tried to put out some factors that organizations can consider as they're doing it, how much quality control is required of this particular action, if quality is more important, lean maybe less towards giving it over completely, or what is the impact or risk, or is it irreversible? If it's a truly irreversible decision that is a bet the company or bet the agency decision, probably shouldn't have a computer making that without any human impact. So we're not telling organizations exactly what to do there, but we're telling them, you know, you can have a tendency when you're sold something new just to drop it in and say it's great, and you need to give some serious thought to it. Sure. And um, one of the you know, recommendations was log, log, and log more. Great point. Logging is the basics of cybersecurity. We debated whether to include it because it's kind of a like no-duh kind of recommendation. But in the context of these AI tools, it came up in a few different ways. And we ultimately not only included it, but made it one of our more prominent ones. Logs are what allow you to detect intrusions and quantify them if they happen. But logs, which are essentially data, are key to what the AI can do for you. And if it is not getting very current, very up-to-date data, it both will be unable to detect things that are going on and see patterns of potential intrusions you've never seen before. But also a lot of AI-driven, AI-enabled intrusion activity is going to look like normal activity. So you need that level of data the most you can get in order to pick out those proverbial needles from an ever-growing haystack. Yeah, it's almost like the monster in that movie uh, in space looked like a German shepherd. And then when it came in, all of a sudden it morphed into this horrible man-eating, woman-eating device. All right. You had some specific recommendations for the government also. First thing that we wanted to make sure that the government, our view is the government needs to be willing and comfortable leaning in if it sees an AI tool that is a particular risk, either because it enables malicious activity, it could be used to generate um, whether it is bad physical things or bad cyber things, to consider whether acquiring it so you can then license it out for good uses or put controls around it. So hopefully that gives some cover to government folks who really see the need sometimes to step in. We shouldn't just let everything move forward without any government intervention. Second thing is making sure that the proverbial ecosystem, the entire ecosystem benefits from these tools. If good 
cyber AI enabled tools are only available to the wealthiest and biggest organizations, we will ultimately all be suffering because the, you know, unfortunately the criminals will know where to go and the criminal activity will flow up to the rest of us. So focus on whether it is pushing tools out through open source incentives or other ways to make sure they're widely available. And the final thing we talked about is making sure that there's integration, computer science, data science, technical training. It needs to be integrated at some level. Coders need to learn cyber. They need to learn AI, vice versa. We don't want to have just a few unicorns that know how cyber AI and engineering interact. Necessarily to have a engineer or a true computer developer know the depths of it, but they need to be able to issue spot to know when to say, okay, I want to bring in the expert here to make sure we're not introducing new risks that I just haven't thought of. And what happens with the paper now? So we've done a few events on it. We've gotten a good amount of interest actually from governments around the globe, and we are hoping to continue to help educate on, on again, these simple things. And that's been, for me, one of the most interesting pickups is people using this you know, this is anecdotally to, to drive their organizations, both to think before they implement. Um, I think one of our recommendations is don't fall for the hype, but also to make sure they're applying all those existing security practices in place. There never will be a silver bullet to cybersecurity. The best we can do is put together, you know, a bunch of 10% solutions and five or six of them, and you're 50% of the way there. Jeff Green is Senior Director for Cybersecurity Programs at the Aspen Institute, also former Director of the Cybersecurity Center of Excellence at NIST. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the recommendations at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how the Education Department earned an A grade on its Fitara scorecard. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Education Department was one of three agencies to receive an A grade on the 16th iteration of the scorecard on how it performs under the Federal IT Acquisition Reform Act, known as FATARA. That's an accomplishment, but education's real achievement is how its technology staff is able to deliver technology services. For how they got that A, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke with education's chief information officer, Luis Lopez. Before the pandemic, we were averaging about 60,000 calls a month um, in our environment on Skype slash Teams. Doesn't sound like a lot, or it may sound like a lot, but you know, for 4,000 people, that was coming out to be about one call per person per day. So it's a very nominal use of that collaboration tool. Now we're averaging 800,000 calls a month on Teams, and it's folks using it for video. It's using it for, you know, slide desk sharing. It's doing it for all kinds of of different uh, capabilities that were not really leveraged back then, right? So, you know, making sure that transition occurs, I think it's part of the, the, the challenge that folks are having because the moment you're moving, you know, now, now what are you disrupting? Uh, so there's a lot of lessons learned that we have, and I've shared it with other agencies because we've had those conversations. And, and and I think the larger your organization is, the, the more difficult it can get. Then there's the administrative piece, right? Getting the billing to be done. You know, sometimes it may take two to three months before that vendor is able to complete that billing to get you off of EIS. So, you know, and, and where are certain things? So there, there's different things that are contribute to EIS. I think we're finally in a, in a place where we've improved. And if anything, we've actually introduced more capabilities. In the past, you know, for anyone that needed a, a mobile phone to be remote, 
You know, we're, we were paying a certain amount for an iPhone. Now we have the capability through EIS where we're providing an alternative is, do you want a soft phone? Well, what is a soft phone? It's like, well, do you really need to be away from your computer throughout the day to be able to call because you don't want to use your personal phone? Well, now a soft phone allows you to have a dedicated phone number to your laptop so you can, you know, communicate with external stakeholders. They can call you directly. You know, we've introduced uh, more video teleconferences to our environment. I think it's probably about 65 that we've uh, installed across our, our entire enterprise, which gives us the ability to use different collaboration tools, whether it's Teams or Zoom or WebEx, what have you. So folks are engaging and really sort of uh, embracing what EIS has brought. We've also installed, uh, we used to only have guest Wi-Fi for anyone that was a guest in the building at our DC buildings and two of our regional buildings out of 17. Uh, now we have guest Wi-Fi at all of our buildings and we also have government Wi-Fi in our buildings and all by doing cost savings and avoidance on top of that. So, you know, this is where Fatara sort of comes to mind with the EIS. It's like we're modernizing our technology. We're getting our portfolio better but we're also reducing our costs, which allows us to either A, you know, redirect those dollars for something else that's also important to the department or make just make sure that we're being good stewards of taxpayer dollars. But to your original question of EIS, it is a challenge. It's, it's not easy, which is why I think we're, you know, with EIS for the next 11 to 12 years. Um, so it's a large contract through, through that vehicle, but it's also given us a lot of flexibility to, to modernize for our customer uh, base. Really appreciate you sharing that story. I think EIS has gotten a, a rough go over the last uh, couple of years. We saw a bunch of agencies needing extra, extra time. So uh, it's good to hear that not all of them, you, you as the example, uh, you, you cross that finish line. Do you have a sense of how much money you're saving at all? Or, or is it is it not necessarily true savings? It's the, we got rid of old, we got on to new, the cost may be the same, but we're getting... 10%, 20%, 80% more services or better services or new services than we got under the old old one. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'll even throw the number out there, which which is fine. I mean, but it it's it's somewhere in the ballpark of three to four mil a year that we're saving. And, and over the course of the life of the of the contract, we're looking at 36 to 48 million dollars that we're looking to save. So it's it's a it's a big uh, piece. Now, with that said, we know that. That would, that would mean that we'd say status quo in most cases, right? We go from like to like. We know that we're going to use possibly some of that to, um, to modernize, but also we're also looking at sunset, you know, prior, you know, technologies, but it is a good cost savings. You know, I always, you know, my staff are always like, don't, don't say that number just said, cause we may not get there, but, but that is the goal. And that's what we projected to save. And it's, it's a great story um, from an EIS perspective. I know it's been a challenge for, for many agencies, but, you know, once you get across that finish line, um, which is not easy. Uh, it's a lot of hard work and very long days and nights, uh, but it, it is it is the juiciest worth the squeeze there. Education has been one of those agencies that were kind of far ahead of, of so many others when it came to that consolidation piece already, especially on the network side. Do you have an application rationalization strategy? Are you looking to say, how can we take, pick, pick the vendor X that you have 10 different contracts for? Can we get down to one contract for vendor X that everyone can use? Have you started talking about those those things? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I'll use an example of, let's say our website uh, consolidation contract, right? Which I know kind of uh, bleeds into website consolidation, but it's the, the overall kind of contract uh, cons uh, conversation that we're having. So right now we have a big effort to get our ed.gov website, main website upgraded because it hasn't been done in over 20 years. And we, we want to get a website that is obviously 
kind of aligns to the 21st Century Idea Act. It's more personable. We're we're aligning to like different personas, whether you're an educator, a student, whatever the case may be, um, to make sure that it's easier to align and get that customer service. Now, that being said, over the last 20 years, we've had a lot of folks say, you know what, I don't like the ed.gov website. This is at the department. We want to go our own way. So we're going to go to contract A over here with this vendor. And so we call these sort of child site. So the problem with that is, is, you know, they're paying a different uh, pricing and it's usually more premium because it's smaller. So you're paying something that if we had consolidated all those together, we're probably getting a lot more buying power. And not only that, but we're also getting better governance, not just from the IT portfolio, but also the look and feel of that website. So that when the public goes to it, they're not going to ed.gov slash B and it looks a certain feel. You go to, you know, ed.gov R, it looks a different way. We want... You know, when you go to ed.gov, you go to one place, you find everything you need. So when you're uh, someone in your educational journey, you get what you need, you get that feel, and you're able to move forward. So that's something that we're, it's already in the works. We're looking to have, you know, it's like a four-phase approach. We're already looking to complete phase two by June of 2024, and then go into uh, probably the FY24, maybe 25, to complete all four phases. But that's going to be a major win for the department not just from a contract consolidation perspective, uh, cost savings and avoidance, uh, but also what that output looks like for the American public when they come to our website and try to uh, you know, retrieve information that they may need. To be clear, because I know a lot of vendors do listen to my show, uh, this is a contract that sounds like it's already been awarded versus a new opportunity that's coming, or will it be a series of contracts with the next one coming in sometime in 2024? The first couple of phases that we're looking at have already been awarded. And so as we look to do the other ones, I mean, there may be some really all the child sites and bringing those back in. There may be some, you know, some redirects that we have to do, but that that's still open in the air. That's still something we're discussing. But for at least the first couple of phases, yeah, those have been awarded. Um, but that, that's that's a big one because we have, I would say, over 30, 40 sites that, that need to come back and, and find a centralized site. What are some of your priorities that you're hoping to get done over the next six or nine months? So a couple of things. I mentioned the ed.gov effort. That, that's a big one, not only for a CIO for the department, but also for the for the secretary and the deputy. Um, you know, they really want that website to, to be 21st century idea, you know, meet the PMA, um, just so that all of our stakeholders out there in the public really enjoy that experience. Um, the other piece, which is a little bit contract sensitive, but, you know, we, we are we are going through our new hosting um, environment, uh, uh, recompete. Um, so that's the you know, contract that hosts all of our systems. Um, I think when you spoke uh, with Jason probably about three, four years ago, um, you know, we had about, you know, 450 terabytes worth of data. You know, we've doubled in size in our system footprint. Um, you know, we've added, you know, so many different components to it um, and modernized it. So, you know, that's going to be a massive effort. I think the last time we did it took about five months. Um, it may be longer than that now. I- I'm not sure. So we're looking at that as a major effort uh, from a cloud solution perspective, to just provide the best of breed um, to our customer um, and just to make it easier and more scalable. Luis Lopez, the Education Department's Chief Information Officer, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Find more episodes of Ask the CIO at federalnewsnetwork.com. The Defense Department wants to get more companies through the FedRAMP pipeline. FedRAMP being the program that certifies cloud services providers as secure enough for government use. A senior defense official says the goal for the new FedRAMP equivalency memo is to support contractors using cloud services by letting them go through a third-party assessor. 
And as for zero trust, DOD is focusing on red teaming solutions this year. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis got more on all of this from DOD's Chief Information Security Officer, David McCune. If you look at uh, the DFARS Clause 7012, which sort of initially mandated that companies needed to move to 800-171 for protection of DOD-controlled unclassified information, it was referenced in there that if you were going to use a cloud service in order to satisfy the cybersecurity requirements in 800-171, that that needed to be at a FedRAMP moderate equivalency. For many years, we've been doing assessments through the DIBCAP which is a boots-on-the-ground organization. They work for DCMA. And what we've been finding is that there, it wasn't clear about the definition of FedRAMP equivalency. Now, in 800-171, there's only 110 controls. What we weren't talking about was that you had to achieve FedRAMP moderate for all the cybersecurity controls on the face of the earth. What we, what we wanted to clarify was if you have a 3PAO come in and assess that cloud environment, any of the 110 controls that they say you satisfy, we will give you credit for that. If there are some that you do not satisfy, then you're going to have to work out a customer responsibility matrix where the customer handles the remaining delta. We don't have the capacity to accept POAMs or track POAMs like FedRAMP does. They have a good program there. I love it. I don't want to compete with them. But I do want to give credit to the companies that are trying to leverage a cloud that's not yet FedRAMP certified by having a 3PAO come in and say, okay, are they good with NIST 800-171 or not? And if they're not, what's the delta that the customer has to handle? That's all we were trying to do there. Now, I understand there's some confusion. Uh, I think we're going to have a call with industry where we have a large number of them come onto the call and talk through this a little bit more and tell us where we can maybe clarify the memo. But that was really our intent, just clarify what it meant by FedRAMP equivalency and give them credit for what they have done without having to go the full FedRAMP accreditation process because that's like 350 controls versus the 110. What's the timeline for the call with the industry? Uh, We're hoping to get that together within the next 30 to 45 days. Okay, so the CMMC rule was written way before the memo came out. I'm curious how the memo is going to impact the CMMC final rule. Really, the CMMC rule in this regard remains sort of unchanged from what was in 7012. As you know, we standardized on 800-171, the NIST standard, for protecting CUI. Under CMMC, that's the exact same standard we're going to be checking against. So really, by solving this uh, definition problem from 7012, that will also translate into solving it for CMMC as we implement that. Because, again, the same standard, 800-171, is the backdrop. Yeah. And how do you see what the impact is on the contractors? The goal was to help because I know that the number of people that can get through the FedRAMP pipeline per year, because I sit on the board for the jabs, is about 10 to 12, right? So that's not a lot. So if you don't go with one of the, you know, the vendors that's already been FedRAMP approved, right now there's not a lot of options. You could do an agency accreditation, get the Air Force, the Army, the Navy to sponsor you perhaps. But again, that is sort of constricted as to the number that we can get through each year. So the goal here was to try to help them out because I know one company in particular had a 3PAO assessment. They weren't fully 110 control compliant. And we were trying to figure out how do we handle this. And so we're we're trying to make it so that 
if you're going to get that 3PAO assessment, we'll give you credit for anything that that assessor said that you passed. But if they said that you were not compliant on some things, I can't accept the POAM. I don't have the capacity to do POAMs. So that delta has got to be handled between you and the customer. So that's really the goal. I thought we were helping by doing this because I know how restrictive the FedRAMP process is, whether it's an agency or the jab. Just switching gears in terms of zero trust. So a couple of months ago, I think uh, you were assessing what the cybersecurity gaps were. What are you currently working on? What are some of the short-term goals that you're working through? And what are you hoping to achieve this fiscal year? Uh, As far as zero trust goes, we received plans from the services and agencies at the end of the year. We've assembled teams that looked at all of their implementation strategies. Many of them were good. Some of them needed rework, so we pushed back those to them. This year, we are focusing on red teaming solutions. So any cloud service provider who thinks they can help uh, by delivering a zero trust environment, zero trust capabilities, we want to red team and validate whether or not that's true and kind of give it a seal of approval that not only is this FedRAMP, but also when you do the following things, you can achieve pretty pretty darn close to zero trust, right? So that's the kind of work we want to do this year. The services are moving out on their plans to implement in a variety of different ways. We weren't prescriptive as to the tools or, or paths forward for them. So each one is approaching this in a little bit different way. But that, that's the plan for this year. And as you know, we've got till 2027. We're we're trying to be aggressive. We're going to be looking at ICAM, trying to onboard everybody to a federated ICAM solution so that we can achieve that granular access controls that we're going to need for an advanced level zero trust. We're also looking at some commercial tools that the department likes and has tested, trying to get the services to onboard to those. Uh, And I'm not going to name names on that, but... In terms of the lack of appropriations and the fact that you're still operating under a continuing resolution, how is that affecting you in any way? 100%, yes. We had money that was supposed to come down for a variety of efforts related to zero trust that did not flow. Significant dollars in some cases. So we're having to pivot and see what we can do to prioritize our efforts. At the same time, being hopeful that eventually that money will arrive and we can continue on those initiatives. We've certainly expressed the impacts of that money not flowing, you know, to senior leadership, to Congress, to, to whoever we can to, to let them know. But, you know, we might be we might be stuck there. And in terms of long-term impact, do you think that might impact the 2027 deadline? Right now, I, I don't think so. These are sort of key validation initiatives that we were going to spend dollars on. Part of the money was for an integrated solution that achieves zero trust. The services, though, they have their money and they have their plans. And the same thing with the agencies. Uh, the money that I'm talking about was money that was going to flow to the DOD CIO for a lot of the initiatives that we had uh, in the portfolio management office, trying to help push this thing along and accelerate it and do validation and give people a pick list of, of validated tools and things like that. So there's, there's some impacts there, but we're working around it for now. David McCune, Chief Information Security Officer at the Defense Department, speaking with Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis. Check out Anastasia's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 